Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 23, what's for dinner? The first time I visited the UK, we hit Heathrow Airport in the morning after about, I think it was 14 hours flying time. Uh, From there we got the hire car and I headed straight out to the beautiful town of Bath. Early afternoon, I was enjoying a pint of Guinness at the Huntsman and a pretty good lunch of a rich beef pie. They say, though, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and it was the next morning at the Wild Cafe that I had my first true experience of what is known as the full English breakfast. It consisted of bacon, tomato, eggs, sausage, mushroom, toast, and one other uniquely British element, black pudding. But what is black pudding? Well... If you are of a certain age and humour bent, you saw Bill Oddie in the goodies use one to devastating effect. But for everyone else, uh, this is a British traditional blood sausage made from pork blood with the addition of pork fat or beef suet and a combination of oatmeal or barley groats. This addition of cereal apparently is what makes it different to other blood sausages elsewhere in the world. So I learned something there. So there I am in this cafe and eating black pudding for the first time. And I really enjoyed it despite knowing what's actually in it. It had a crumbly sort of earthy sort of taste that goes really well with the meal. So I would recommend Brekkie at the Wild Cafe. They really do have good food. They haven't sponsored this ad. I just like supporting local businesses. Get it there and check them out. Now the Wild Cafe actually have all of their food locally sourced. And these days, we take it for granted to have a supply of good quality food. Everything is free-range, grain-fed, organic, or just simply produced in a far more hygienic manner than ever before. We also have at least a basic understanding of dietary requirements and what is good or bad for us. Now, all that is great, given that I'm talking about recent times... But hey, this is a podcast on the Victorian era, so I do hear the question. What did they eat during the 1800s? Well, I'm glad you asked, and this is the podcast for you. We think these days that being rich or poor means a huge difference. And I agree, in some ways it does. But in terms of what we have available to eat, on the most important things, the difference today is nothing compared to the 1800s. Putting aside class struggle, these days in the modern world we largely have access to all the appropriate dietary requirements regardless of economic status. But in the Victorian era, social demographics could define your life in ways that we can't imagine today. The Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst was founded in 1801 and the majority of those men recruited came from the middle or upper class backgrounds. Uh, 
the average height of a Sandhurst recruit was 175 centimetres. It's about 5 foot 9. Now, that might seem a little short by today's standards, but the Sandhurst boys were statistically among the tallest in the world at the time. Keep their height in mind though, because let's compare them with the older lads from the slums that were recruited by the Marine Society. This was a charity that had been set up to give the poorest of the poor a chance. Its main focus was to supply the Royal Navy with a source of manpower that they desperately needed. But while they might have been expendable in a military sense, you need to remember this. Their life as it was, was so hard that the average height was a full 22 centimetres, or 9 inches, shorter than those Sandhurst boys. So growing up in a certain economic class in the United Kingdom didn't just dictate what job you might get, it very much dictated your physical being. These were the children that were raised in slums. They lived on bread, lots and lots of bread, as you would know from episode 6. Other delicious choices that they had were gruel, which was a bit like a thin porridge, or you might be lucky enough and have a broth, which was made by boiling up bones and drinking the liquid. Good times in old London town, eh? With this less-than-appropriate diet, it's no surprise that children living in the slums of London were undernourished, anemic and suffering diseases such as rickets. It also, as you've already realised, affected their height. Foods were bought because they were in season. Remember, this is an era before any real refrigeration, and unless it had been pickled or preserved, you bought it and you ate it as soon as you could. As the century moved forward, the creation of railways and steamships meant that foods could be travelled to places faster and even imported from overseas. But this was still the era of local producers. You'd have to go to multiple shops to find all the items that you wanted. During this era, if you lived on a farm, you ate better than those in the cities. After all, you had access to the food at the source, rather than being poor in London and trying to survive on rotten vegetables at best. No wonder the poor kids were that much shorter than their more well-fed upper-class kids. But for many of even the lower economic classes of Victorian England, their diet was in many ways better than what we eat today. Amazing, I know, but think about it. They had access to foods that were virtually unprocessed and also had far less sugar in their diets than we do today. A common breakfast was bread with dripping all lard on it. Sounds a little gross to me too, but these were monounsaturated fats and often eaten with watercress, which was rich in vitamins and phytonutrients. There wasn't the refrigeration that we have these days. People wouldn't have a weekly shop. You expected to buy food regularly, often daily, and be eating it on that night. Seasonal vegetables like onions, turnips, cabbages and leeks would be bought and used in meals. Nuts were often eaten too, and as a common snack, chestnuts and hazelnuts were eaten, having been roasted and available from street sellers. 
these street sellers were often some of the poorest people who would desperately try and make a few pence a day by selling food that they had bought that morning and thus make it more convenient for local pedestrians to buy a snack. Vegetables were common, but meat was relatively expensive. A sheep's head could be bought for only a few pounds in today's money and used in stews and so forth. But rather than red meats, people in the Victorian era ate a lot of seafood. Omega-3 rich foods such as herrings, eels, oysters, cod and haddock were more popular and because of this, people in the Victorian era suffered a lot less from many diseases that we have to deal with today. Dr. Paul Clayton, one of the authors of a study by the Royal Society of Medicine on how Victorians ate, stated that people in the mid-1800s were 90% less likely to develop cancers, dementia and coronary artery disease than we are today. Also, such afflictions like type 2 diabetes were very rare as well, and while they ate more calories on average than we do, by and large they were so physically active that obesity was pretty uncommon. One exception I saw in my reading for this episode was the Victorian undertaker, William Banting. Banting's family were funeral directors to the royal household and their skills were used in the funerals of the Duke of Wellington, Prince Albert and later Queen Victoria herself. William was described as being so obese that he could only walk downstairs backwards. And despite his success in the funeral industry, William actually became famous for being one of the first people to advocate a low-carb diet. In a booklet he published in 1863, he described how he lost 40 pounds, that's about 18 kilos, in only a few months by cutting out a variety of foods such as bread, sugar and potatoes. It became a bestseller and the term to bant became a phrase for dieting. He must have had some effect on his family though. A later Banting descendant, Sir Frederick Banting, would, in the 20th century, be one of the men that won the Nobel Prize for their discovery and use of insulin in diabetic treatment. It's amazing where things start from, isn't it? So in the early years of the Victorian era, if you could afford a breakfast, it would have been cheeses, cold meats and beer. Yes, beer. As the century progressed, this was replaced by meals of porridge, eggs and bacon and what became known as I described earlier, the full English. During this era, most people worked 12 hour days, six days a week. So it was Sunday being the day of rest when all the family would get together and the custom began of buying a joint of meat that would be shared with all the family. Along with all the vegetables and hopefully Yorkshire puddings, the Sunday roast became a tradition really and it was certainly something I experienced growing up in Australia a century later and I didn't realise that this was where it had started. Oh, I'm learning more too. Another tradition that started during the Victorian era 
at least in the Western world, was the introduction of two- and three-course meals. Before this time, food would all just arrive at once. But this change meant meals would arrive one after the other for you to enjoy. Reportedly, Queen Victoria herself was a very big eater and also a very fast one, and she could go through seven courses in less than half an hour. That is all well and good for her, but if you are fortunate enough to sit down at her table for a meal, you are always served after Her Majesty. Because when she finished eating that course, all the plates were cleared. So you better be eating fast or you're going to go hungry. That's a tip for the next time you're at the palace, so you can't say I didn't give you the heads up. (laughs) Anyway, as the century continued, the quality and availability of foods increased. Meat would go from one day a week to two or three days a week, and the establishment of compulsory schooling for children Breakfast was then provided and even gave the poorest children access to foods such as eggs, ham, fruits and fresh bread. The majority of diets during this time had varying levels of beef, mutton, pork, bacon, cheese, eggs, bread, potatoes, rice, oatmeal, milk, seasonal vegetables, flour, sugar, treacle, jam and, of course, tea. But... There were some foods that were readily eaten that I really don't think we'd go for today. One such dish was marrow toast. Using bone marrow cut into small chunks, it was parboiled and then parsley, salt, pepper, lemon juice and shallots were added and served on toasted bread. Apparently this was a favourite of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, so there's something to try for brekkie sometime. But if you didn't feel like marrow toast, well, you could always go to a vendor in the street and pick up a snack of jellied eel. Don't really need to describe that one, I think. But with the colonisation of India, the culture and foods from the subcontinent made their way to the United Kingdom. And an example of the melting pot that can be fusion cooking, one such dish that became popular was kedgeri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. There is a version of this dish that is distinctly Indian, but in the UK, kedgeri was a combination of haddock, milk and rice. Stir-fried, it was topped with sliced boiled eggs and seasoned with curry, coriander and turmeric. Okay, I'd be prepared to give that one a try. I think curried fish has a great taste, but this became a really popular dish for breakfast. Uh, I might wait till lunchtime, I think. And then there was broxy. What's broxy? Hold on to your stomachs. Like I've said earlier, meat was a rarity in many diets during the Victorian era. Broxy was the term for any meat that a butcher would sell that had come from animals that had died from disease. Yes, you heard that correctly. Sheep were the most common source of broxy during the era, Highly susceptible to diseases such as salmonella, ringworm and tetanus, sheep, along with other livestock that had literally dropped dead, were sliced and diced and their meat was sold for human consumption. So when people say today that times are tough, just hope that they never get broxy tough. 
With this episode, I wanted to try and convey just how hard many people had it day to day in the Victorian era. We take it for granted that we can have a basic meal of fresh foods and clean meats. The level of poverty many experienced in the biggest city in the world was incredible. They struggled with class divisions and industrialization, and it seemed almost daily that another new amazing invention was changing their lives. And they ate diseased meat to survive and hoped tomorrow would be better. Anyway, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great at Vic Gaslamp and more importantly on Instagram where I post history facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes and I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks so keep a look out for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.